Glory to the labor comrades and welcome to the cabinet of fever dreams. Tonight, the fifth chapter of Journals from the Institute. This novella was originally released December of 2021 and is read to you tonight by yours truly with musical backing by the dark side of music and Miu. This tale belongs to the United People's Institute of Science series. If you'd like to hear more about the Institute, make sure to check out the past few episodes and tune in for future chapters of the novella. New episodes come out every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. With all that said, prepare your documents. We're heading to a darker time. March 29th, 1988. It's an indescribable rush of anxiety. Seconds after the syringe enters my skin, I can feel it creeping down my spine. Every worry, every hopeless prognosis of the future, each and every bit of stress that gathers in the back of my brain throughout the day comes to the foreground. The tension all gathers into one pulsating blister of gritted teeth and sweaty palms and then... Pop. It disappears. It usually takes me about 15 minutes to stop vomiting. It's not euphoria, it's not pleasant. The syringe forces me to reach deep into my depth and regurgitate what feels like a bottomless well of neurosis. When that well does finally run dry, however, all that is left is a sense of detachment. I spend my days exploring knowledge that could bring an end to human civilization. Hmm, interesting. My mental well-being has deteriorated to the point of no return. An insightful observation. Each day, a couple dozen souls work underground trying to bend the scientific method to the rules of the incomprehensible under the threat of catastrophe. Hmm. Sounds stressful. I'm still aware of the soul-crushing weight of my position, but when I'm sober, the burden feels personal, like something that belongs to me. Once the initial discomfort of the syringe has worn off, the concept of tension becomes wholeheartedly abstract. I scarcely touch the liquor now. I don't need it. I wake up to the siren, I march to the institute, I take part in the horrid study that fate has trapped me in, I march back to my cramped hotel room, I inject the syringe, I vomit, I calm, I go to sleep, I wake up to the siren. My days have started to blend into each other only being interrupted by notable glimpses of knowledge I regularly salvage from the shaman tapes. At some point last week, Dr. Herkel stopped by my lab to discuss progress on my research. I'm pretty confident that he is responsible for the syringes arriving in my room every day. He did not ask about the medicine directly, but he did make implications towards the sort of sacrifices a scientist must make in the pursuit of knowledge. He is pleased with my research. He tells me I should be proud. I have taken to walking around the Rusalka in the evenings. I tell myself I am going on strolls through the hotel because it's cold outside, but I suppose a part of me doesn't want to go past the streets where I once drank. I don't want to think about the drunken nights with the vagrants. The syringes are capable of helping me suppress my current emotional state. I don't want to complicate things. My work is far too important. I fear putting down any extensive knowledge of the film reel on paper, but the power of the artifact is much more extensive than I originally thought. Real XO422 traps its viewers within an incomprehensible reality, but in comparison to the true potential of the technology, it is a simple snare. With the right tools and adjustments, the mechanics behind the film reel of the suffering shaman can be adjusted. They can be adjusted into something much, 
much more dangerous. This technology needs to be understood. That's why I need to make sure I stay sane. Walking around the hotel at the end of the day is a pretty pleasant experience. It might be the drugs coursing through my veins, but when I walk through the identical halls of Rusalka, I find peace. Somewhere in that field of ash-covered carpets and repeating doors, I find a reminder of order and feel like something in the universe is in its right place. I also like the paintings in the hallways. The hotel lacks any sense of decor. The lobby is a blend of brutalism and construction fraud, and all the rooms upstairs are purely pragmatic. Aside from the paintings, the Rusalka is unrecognizable from any other provincial town hotel. Those paintings, however, are unforgettable. They are littered through the floors, almost hidden away from paths which the guests would walk. Yet once the paintings are discovered, they grab a hold of one's soul. Landscapes. Paintings of impending storms. Each of the paintings depicts a country scene with a gathering tempest in the distance. The vistas themselves aren't particularly inspired, but the storm clouds, they never cease to seize the heart. Shades of red and purple and gray, a mass of thick fog ready to burst with thunder and lightning. The craftsmanship that captures the impending elements is profound. My emotions feel like a distant echo when I am under the influence of the medicine, yet I have found myself weeping in front of the paintings on multiple occasions. When I was young, back before I committed my life to science, I fantasized about a life in the arts. I still take some amount of pride in the diagrams that have accompanied most of my published research. But when I was young, I would try my hand at arts unrelated to science. The thought of making something and presenting it to the world, of using the dexterity in my fingers to create a piece of self-expression, I have spent so much of my youth stifling that dream. I understand that now my calling is singular. It will forever be singular. I am destined to work at the Institute until the day I die. I am destined to research a fraction of the horrid underbelly of reality so that our species may survive. I cannot create because I must commit my life to preventing the destruction of our species by our own hand. I cannot be an artist. Yet, I can't help but to wonder who painted those stunning thunderstorms. April 25th, 1988. I have made inquiries about the paintings. I made inquiries about the artist behind those terrifying vistas in the hallways of the Rusalka, and my search has led me to many discomforting discoveries. In early April, my curiosity about the paintings had gotten the better of me. I have rarely spoken to the hotel personnel since I moved into the Rusalka, but the old man behind the check-in desk was more than happy to talk about the paintings. He knew the artist personally. Adam Bronowski was a Polish scientist who once worked at the Institute just like me. Bronowski was no different from the other researchers of the Institute. He wore a tortured expression on his face, he kept to himself, and he never indulged in any pleasantries with the hotel staff. Bronowski did, however, differ from his colleague in one peculiar way. He painted. When he wasn't wearing his lab coat, the stench of paint thinner and the remnants of acrylic color would linger on his clothes. When the receptionist first noticed the signs of artistry, he kept quiet. The scientist did seem to value his privacy after all, but when he spotted Bernowski taking one of the canvases to the hotel's trash compactor, he could not stay silent. The receptionist confronted Bernowski in the basement of the hotel. Much like me, the old man was able to spot the genius in Bernowski's paintings. Anyone with even the merest sense of art 
could sense that there was something special about the vistas. Yet when the clerk offered even the slightest amount of praise, Brunovsky was confused. He had never shown his art to anyone. He had never considered his paintings anything other than a release of neurotic energy. The kind words of the receptionist took the scientist by surprise. The surprise was not unpleasant. The management of the Rusalka deemed paintings in the lobby to be unprofessional, but they had no strong opinions about art being displayed in the hallways. With Bernowski's consent, the receptionist hung up the art. There wasn't much that he could offer in terms of payment, but the receptionist's cousin brewed a fiery schnapps. Bernowski was happy to share a drink and talk about art. The two quickly became friends. My inquiries about the offer of the paintings made the old receptionist grow visibly animated. Within a couple of sentences, the man was taking me to his office to show me the photograph of the two. He even dusted off a bottle of his cousin's liquor and offered me a drink. I was happy to indulge, and I was even happier to speak to someone interested in the arts. Yet the photograph made conversation with the receptionist burdensome. Trapped in time, a much younger version of the gray-haired receptionist smiled back at me from the picture. Next to him, with an equally cheery grin, stood a chubby man with fading hair and a goatee. He seemed familiar. The old man was pleasant and intelligent and made for much better company than the vagrants or the black marketeer, but I couldn't focus on what he was saying. I was far too occupied with the question of where I had seen Bernowski before. I lost sleep that night, trying to recall every single trip to Poland I had ever taken, professional or otherwise. I was certain I did not meet Bernowski then. I fought back to the symposiums I had presented my old research at, of all the meetings of the greatest minds of the East, but still, no familiarity with the Polish painter presented itself. It wasn't until I went to work in the morning that it dawned on me. Minute 6.42 of the original X04-22 reel, Anna Bernowski appears among the sea of faces. His cheery grin is replaced with an expression of bottomless despair and his clothes hang on his famished body like rags, but the moment I saw the figure through my safety goggles, I knew it was him. I knew that Adam Bernowski was trapped inside a real X-04-22. After some consideration, I contacted Dr. Herkel. I was not meant to interest myself with the work of other members of the Institute, but Bernowski was directly connected to my area of study. At first, Dr. Herkel was reluctant to reveal any information about Bernowski, but eventually he relented to my logic. Adam Bernowski, he informed me, had been my predecessor. It took a lot of effort to stifle the rage at not being given this crucial piece of information, but soon enough I realized that Bernowski being trapped within the film reel was news to Dr. Herkel as well. My predecessor had simply disappeared. It wasn't the first time that a scientist simply disappeared from the Institute. After the searches from Adam Bernowski brought any results, all that Herkel could do was hope that the scientist didn't defect to a foreign power. When I told Herkel that Bernowski was trapped inside of the film reel, he seemed almost relieved. The man was not dead and he had not defected. This was good news. Dr. Herkel quickly inquired about the possibility of bringing the scientist back into the halls of the Institute. My knowledge of the technology has developed enough to a point where the rescued seem to be on the fringes of possibility. With some sleepless effort over the past weeks, that possibility has hardened into a concrete hypothesis. Tomorrow, I will find out if that hypothesis holds. I fear failure. My tests have been rigorous and I am confident I have achieved a grip on the forbidden knowledge, but the possibility of failure still steals stability away from my pen. 
What I fear considerably more, however, is what I will be confronted with if I succeed. The man in the film reel is not the smiling man on the photograph. It has been years since he disappeared. Even half an hour of the shaman's song is enough to make me uneasy. I cannot imagine what sort of torture Brunovsky has undergone. April 26th, 1988. I will not indulge in the details of the technology used to perform the task, but Dr. Pernovsky has been removed from the film reel. The man looks like he has been a prisoner of war, but his vital signs are stable. What seems to have deteriorated past the point of no return is his mental state. The moment Dr. Bernovsky found himself within the confines of my laboratory, he exhibited signs of total psychological collapse. He did not scream like a man. The sounds that emerged from the emaciated scientists were akin to the howling of a wolf. It was not joy that provoked the screams, it was not pain or fear or any other human emotion. The sounds that quivered out of Dr. Bernovsky's throat were pure manifestations of chaos. After years in the company of the horrid shaman, the scientist had turned completely feral. Dr. Herkel insisted on being present for the extraction and brought along two members of the Institute's security forces. The presence of the stone-faced strangers with rifles made me uncomfortable, but they proved useful. When Dr. Bernovsky awoke on the floor of my laboratory, he attacked me. I want to believe that the reason why he leaped at me was because that was the nearest person to him, that his assault was a mere product of shock, but my hopes remain restrained. Dr. Bernovsky will be kept in the Institute's holding cells for the time being. A medical team will be dispatched tomorrow to see what sort of insight his physiology can reveal about the future potential of the film reel technology. Dr. Herkel has agreed to me being privy to information gained from the medical exams, but he has been very hesitant about allowing me to have contact with my predecessor. Herkel says that I should be focusing on exploring how the ejection of Bernovsky from the footage has affected the nature of real XO422. I hold deep respect for Dr. Herkel. But in this one avenue, I believe he is wrong. Dr. Bernovsky's absence from the tapes is obvious. He is no longer among the suffering chorus that chants along with the shaman. There is nothing else to be explored about it. Yes, the reels, the copies of the footage, the instruments have constructed, there is still countless amounts of research which I can gain from staying in my lab, but interviewing someone who has been trapped within the film reel for a prolonged period of time is undoubtedly a better use of my time. I have made my case to Dr. Herkel today, and I will do so again tomorrow. I demand to speak to my predecessor. It is necessary for my understanding of real XO422. Yet, as I write these words, I realize there is another reason why I crave to speak to Bernovsky. His insight into the real, his scientific brain. Undoubtedly, there is knowledge to be gained, but I want to speak to Bernovsky not simply as a peer in the realm of science. I want to speak to him as a fellow artist. Over the past weeks, I have begun to doodle in my journal. At first, I thought that a need to draw shapes was simply the byproduct of the syringes. But the more I think about it, the closer I get to having to admit to myself that Bernovsky has inspired me. Somehow, even in the midst of committing his mind to a horrid breed of science just like I have, the man has managed to create art. I am a scientist, first and foremost, this is my duty, but I crave to know more about the artist's brushstrokes. April 27th, 
1988. I did not go to my lab this morning. I went directly to Dr. Herkel. The information the medical team has obtained from examining Bernowski confirms most of my hypothesis and inspires new crucial areas of study. I was pleased with the results of the physical tests, but the psychiatric evaluation is what I was most interested in. The results were not good. Once the screaming had driven him hoarse, Dr. Bernowski quieted down and became catatonic. He showed comprehension of the questions he had been asked, but past monosyllabic answers, he refused conversation. No psychometric tests could be performed. The patient refused to cooperate. I asked Dr. Herkel what was to happen with Bernowski. He spoke in euphemisms, but his answer was clear. Anna Bernowski knew far too much about the Institute to be left alive, even if turned catatonic. I demand to see my predecessor. For a moment, Herkel watched me like a headmaster regards a disobedient pupil, but eventually he relented. He knew I was right. Me speaking to Dr. Bernowski was essential to my research. The holding cells of the Institute are in the uppermost echelon of the wall of doors. When one walks into the cathedral structure from the elevator, all memories of nature dissipate. But up near the vaulted ceilings, one can smell the gentlest hint of the forest outside. The sight of the tiled floors below still made me grip the railings tight, but it was pleasant to breathe in somewhat fresh air. Sitting opposite someone who has also inspected real X0422 was a surreal experience. I was sitting opposite the only person in the world that could comprehend what I had been through over the past six months. I was sitting opposite the only person in the world who could understand the dread that shaman instills in the soul. Yet, I kept my questions as professional as possible. I tempered my tone. I did not display any sympathies. I knew I was being watched. My questions did not get a response to the Bernowski. When I told him I was a successor and that I had witnessed real X0422, he raised his sunken eyes to look at me. But after that brief moment of acknowledgement, all my questions received was a slow nod of the head. Bernowski refused to talk. Knowing that this was possibly the last moment I could spend with my kindred spirit, I produced a pen and paper and passed it over to him. I told Adam Bernowski that his paintings were still hanging in the halls of Rusalka and that they had caught my attention. He acknowledged me once more. This time, his gaze wasn't momentary. There was a flicker in the man's tired eyes. When I passed him the pen and paper and asked him to draw, his face twisted into a grimace of utter confusion. He regarded the objects as completely foreign, but eventually, all while keeping terrified eye contact with me, the man crawled beneath the desk with the pen and paper. Down by the cell's sole air vent, Adam Bernowski started to draw. The situation was highly unusual, but I had empathy for the scientist. When I was young, I too used to hide under tables and draw when I found myself uncomfortable. The mental trauma that Dr. Bernowski experienced being trapped inside real X0422 was immeasurable. A regression to infancy wasn't unexpected. What shocked me were the products of his drawing. At first, all that was on the paper was a scattered grouping of shapes. It was as if Adam Bernowski's world existed purely as disconnected geometric objects. Yet then, something recognizable started to appear on the paper. Through lines that followed no logic, and shading patterns that revolved around an incomprehensible light, a machine appeared on the sheet. By the time he crumpled up the paper and placed it in my hands, I knew exactly what I was looking at. 
Dr. Bernofsky had drawn the machine I had used to free him from the tape. Paper. He rasped from beneath the table. Paper more. Without a moment's hesitation, I threw out a page from my journal and passed the paper down to the artist below. He drew once again, growing more animated with each stroke of the pen. The drawing he gave me was a furious marriage of the scientific and artistic brain. The art breathed with the same power that surrounded Bernowski's storm paintings. It also functioned as a detailed diagram of a piece of complicated technology. Had I seen the drawing six months prior, I would have been able to design the machine within a week. Paper, he said once more. I need paper. Paper for draw. The crumpled up piece of paper I received in exchange for the torn sheets made my blood run cold. A set of lenses organized in a fashion that would suggest the modern handheld camera, but considerably larger. A machine that, if wired correctly, could capture objects and transport them into the foreign realm. Dr. Bernowski had drawn a piece of technology that was not yet built. There were minor adjustments in the lens positioning and the power source in his version, but I was looking at a diagram of a machine I was still in the process of designing. Sky. Bernofsky whispered from beneath the table, sniffing at the air duct. I draw for sky. The following pictures he handed over were still impressive in their detail, but no new technology was revealed to me. The safety goggles was used to view the footage, the machine used to duplicate the film frames, the mechanisms used to transfer the film reel into different distribution methods. In one afternoon, Dr. Bernofsky had provided detailed diagrams of almost every machine in my laboratory. The drawings were dangerous in their specificity, but the potential for them accelerating my research was irresistible. No one from the institute had interrupted my visit. I simply let the man draw. When the ink on the pen I had given Bernofsky ran out, I offered him another one, but he shook his head. I draw more after rest, he said. I draw more, but promise sky, promise freedom. With each drawing, the scientist had grown more coherent. His potential to my research, his ability to hasten the accumulation of knowledge that could save humanity, and on Bernowski's utility, is undeniable. His wish for freedom, however, will never be granted. When I exited Bernowski's cell, Dr. Herkel was waiting for me. Upon revealing the diagrams, I was congratulated on my resourcefulness, but when I suggested Bernowski's release, Dr. Herkel refused to even consider the request. I understood the dangers of releasing an unstable man possessing knowledge of real XO422. While Adam Bernofsky was still useful to my research, he was to believe that he would be given freedom. Once his usefulness ceased, I was to contact Dr. Herkel. When I came back to Rusaka this evening, I spent a long time walking through its halls and admiring Bernofsky's paintings. I know that the orders Herkel has given me are the only reasonable option. I know there is no place at the Institute for sentimentality. I know what is at stake. Yet I can't help but to feel pity for the artist. May 5th, 1988. Dr. Bernowski's mental state has improved at an astonishing rate. Within a few days of the art therapy, he has been able to construct stable sentences. By the end of the week, he was capable of conversation. The scientist's mind emerging from the murk has, however, impacted his artistic output. His drawings have shifted from diagrams of dark science machines, which seems reminiscent of his paintings. 
The sketches are beautiful. The majestic stormy skies above the puny valleys inspire awe in the hearts, even if they are etched with an office pen. I have kept the drawings as a keepsake, but Dr. Herkel grows tired of them. Whenever I pay Dr. Bernowski a visit, Dr. Herkel is always watching from behind the two-way mirror. For the past three days, Dr. Bernowski has not produced any useful diagrams. With each wasted day, Dr. Herkel's questions about the usefulness of our prisoner grow more and more accusatory. I fear that soon he will insist on the man's removal. I fear that there is not much that I can do. As Dr. Bernowski's mental capacity grew sharper, so did his questions about freedom. What at first was a polysyllabic plea for Sky has shifted into an expressed need for conditions of release. I have tried to stall as much as possible, to keep the promises of freedom vague enough to inspire hope. Yet as Dr. Bernowski's mind recovered, his awareness of the Institute's rule came back as well. Today he asked me who is currently in charge of the Institute. The moment I mentioned Herkel's name, he stopped drawing. He said he knew the man. He said he knew that Dr. Herkel would never release him. I tried to lie and convince him that Herkel was willing to let him leave if Bernowski swore that he would stay silent. But I am not a good liar. Finally, I gave up. I told Dr. Bernowski that there was no blue skies waiting for him and that he would only remain alive as long as he remained useful to the research. For a moment, he simply sat beneath the table, staring into the air vent, caught in a daze. Then, gripping the pen I lent him tight enough to snap it, he informed me he would no longer draw. When I tried reasoning with the man, when I told him that the promise of potential diagrams was the only thing keeping him alive, Bernowski rejected all attempted at civilized conversation and instead, he attacked me. He managed a single bite into my foot before the stone-faced security men came in and subdued him. Dr. Herkel was not pleased with my conduct. The syringes have kept me composed so far. Yet as I write these words, I can't help but sense a quiver in my hand. I feel guilty. I feel guilty for lying to the man, for being a part of the mechanism that will ultimately snuff out the spark which he could have shared with the world. Even past the laudanum, coursing through my veins, I feel a deep shame for being partly responsible for the death of Adam Pernowski. The Cabinet of Fever Dreams is written and produced by Mike Jesus Langer and is brought to you by patrons such as Moo, Serafina L, Lucky J. Horton, Alan Rawl, Kuss, Bob Condor, Chicken Mixer, Daniel Wengel, and Mr. Creepy Pasta. If you'd like to join these fine folks in supporting the show and get early access to episodes along with a bunch of bonus content, drop by patreon.com slash Mike J. Langer. That's all for tonight, comrade. See you here next episode for another chapter of the Journals from the Institute. Glory to the labor.